Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST site, my website, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz or at Banking Day. For the most extensive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business from our website, leongetler.com. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review a monitor of the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 31 in our series for 2023, and today's date is Friday, September the 1st. First, I'll be talking to Danielle Harmer from Domain. Danielle is General Manager Product for all of Domain's aging products, along with GM of all homes. And I'll be talking to Rabobank economist Michael Ivory about China's economic crisis. But first, let's talk to Danielle Harmer. Well, Daniel Harmer, uh, what is the role of technology in real estate? Today, uh, compared to probably 20 years ago, it plays a very significant role in marketing a property in just the way that real estate agents actually um, interact with vendors and sell houses. And without it, we'd be, you know, in in a very different old world where we would just list houses in newspapers and hope for the best. But uh, it, it is it is just immense technology uh, and growing at an incredible pace. A ton of investment is going into prop tech, in, into portals, into all sorts of technology that really service the, the real estate industry in Australia. So it's a, it's a huge space. Is it also a better way of reaching audiences? Absolutely. I, I kind of classify tech in, in real estate in, in two buckets. One is around marketing and, and how you use technology to reach the largest audiences you possibly can to get it in front of as many eyeballs and, and as many you know possible buyers and sellers that you possibly can. So audience is one one big thing, and that that's really around marketing for if you're gonna, you know, sell sell a house. The other part of technology in real estate is actually actually service real estate agents behind the scenes. There's a lot of, you know, complex processes that go into, you know, selling and listing a house. And uh, there's tons of technology that real estate agents use that are kind of more workflow solutions that help them look good in front of vendors and that really kind of run what is a pretty complex process when people are selling houses. So that's like taking the sort of 
you know, typical sales process that you think of. There's a lot of tech and a lot of AI out there, you know, for banks that look at the real estate industry. There's a lot of data technology that a lot of industries use. Obviously, real estate plays a huge part in our economy. So there's a lot of people interested in that sort of data space as well. So there's lots of tech in that data space as well. So depends on how far you want to go when we talk about tech in, in real estate. Do you yourself use a lot of data? I do in my role. So um, particularly as a technology person, you know, day to day, I am quite often looking at, at data that is, you know, how, how many, how much audience we've reached, um, what is the conversion on, on listing portals, um, how many listings do we have, what are the days on market, what, what is the... There's just, there's so much data in our world. I would say I absolutely use it daily, not only on the technology side to drive our roadmaps and what we actually, you know, develop and use our engineering capacity to develop, but also what we talk about with our clients, what we what we go to market and write about to our consumers, um, you know, facts around the, the property industry, as well as what we go to our, you know, our core business, which is our real estate agent industry. Data is just immense. So domain uses technology to actually draw it closer to customers and the other part of your community, the real estate agents. Absolutely. Yep. And and both are extremely critical in, in the world that is the real estate industry. You, you need a huge audience and you need to keep them um, with nice facts and they're always interested in, in their house and what it's going to sell for and what is their asset worth and what's happening in the industry um, and what's for sale. Uh, and on the flip side of it, agents, you know, it's incredibly important that they have data, that they have really strong, you know, compliance and, and processes behind when they're working with their customers as well. Um, and we absolutely look at both of those things as key kind of technology areas. Do you use AI? Yeah, it's actually interesting. We we just launched a product um, at Domain called LeadScope, which is a tool that is AI based, it's it's computer learning um, and it helps be a little bit predictive. It helps agents think about who they might contact in their database, about who might be looking to sell. It's where agents have a relationship. They might have known someone uh, and they're actually, you know, thinking this this address or these, these um, people that we already know might be thinking about selling and now's the time to get in touch, giving them some market stats. And that's one example where, where we're actually using AI. We've launched a recent product for our agent market. Um, that's looking at sort of you know machine learning it's it's a constant algorithm the other foundations of that so it's and it's evolving so quickly now the AI space yeah and so oh, that's quite an innovative approach of domain to use it isn't it uh, oh absolutely and and I think AI has been around and machine learning and and data has been around for a long time. I think we're just seeing that space really advance very quickly. We've seen the use of chat GPT. We're seeing a lot of real estate agencies now using just the foundational chat GPT and they're writing their listing copy that goes to market if they're selling a house and, and all sorts of, you know, different ways to use it. But I can only see it, it growing, but we're absolutely using a lot of that technology around machine learning already in a lot of the models that we uh, that we go out to market for when we're using stats and reporting on what we think might happen in the property space as well as kind of you know some of the tech that we use for our our real estate agents well i mean this is an interesting point because i mean 64 dollar question would that mean that besides agents and salespeople, domain is also employing a lot of tech people to drive this stuff absolutely i mean Domain is a technology business and, uh, you know, a significant proportion of Domain's workforce, Domain Group's workforce are the incredible engineers 
um, that build on on the technology that support you know our real estate agents, our, our banking clients, and our consumers. And so, a huge proportion of our workforce at Domain Group are, are wonderful engineers and technology people. Yeah. So, I mean, how does technology play a part in in each market setting? I mean, there's a I mean, the real estate section is always changing uh, even as we speak how is uh, technology playing a role in that super interesting question because I've, I've worked at domain for seven years also and I've seen the market conditions change quite a lot so it's it's been really interesting seeing you know what technology gets used or what we what the industry relies more on or what consumers rely more on in, in different market settings um, just to give you a couple of examples of quite easy sort of, you know, market settings is, you know, when there's less listings. So when there's less people selling properties, which is actually sort of the period that we're in now, real estate agents, you know, really have to rely on strong technology to find those listings and to win listings and to win business. So in an environment where there's less properties coming to market, the agents rely much more on, you know, technology that will supply good market insights that will help them, you know, prospect or get in touch with people that they might know that, you know, they they might think about selling and they want to be there. So in a less listing environment, it's it's fascinating what the agents will really rely on to make sure that we keep that, that transaction volume going. When there's more listings, funny enough, and we've been through this during, you know, periods of COVID when actually people were taking advantage of the really amazing price increases and lots of people were wanting to sell and, and gain from those price increased profits. At that stage, when you have lots of listings, again, our, our real estate agents and people who are wanting to sell, then look at those, you know, incredible technologies that offer audience and exposure. So you're really looking at really savvy marketing tools. And that is you might be using portals, uh, but you're also working with social media platforms, you know, even platforms like our wonderful print magazine um, and really diversifying how you can get in touch with audiences to sell. And when there's a lot of stock, you actually have to stand out in front of the crowd. So you've really got to look at, you know, what products you can use to market that property. Again, similar sort of position when days on market uh, are a bit higher. And we're seeing that in certain markets at the moment, you know, properties are sitting on the market for much longer. Um, and so again, agents and, and sellers will really look to marketing solutions that get them maybe in front of a much wider audience than they may traditionally have. So how do they get that out um, on the different platforms? Another example is when, you know, again, when it, when you've got a lot of people inspecting, we had this during COVID, we had a lot of interest in property. Interest rates were so low that everyone, you know, wanted to get into the property market, just managing check-ins. So there we have technology, we have a product at Domain, which is called HomePass, where you're, you're checking people in the door quite quickly and efficiently. And you can really distinguish, you know, which one you think might actually buy, who do you want get in contact with first and even things that make that process more efficient when you've got a lot of people through the door that sort of technology super helpful as well so yeah just a, another example even just in lockdown when we were closing doors people couldn't attend houses then you really rely on 3d tours and photos and videos and so every market you know condition you really do you know turn to technology uh, for that stuff in real estate yeah well Final question, and this is important. With agents using technology, how do they keep pace with it? Because technology is always changing. It is. And I think that's a challenge for, you know, the the 10,000 odd agencies that we have across Australia. You know, some of the things they have to think about uh, are things like, does the technology that I'm choosing today, does it scale 
does the pricing, you know, are we pricing at a listing or a license level as a subscription and I locked in? Is it compliant? So we have a lot of issues in Australia, particularly with real estate agencies and consumers and, and almost any industry actually where you're collecting, you know, you might be collecting ID data, you know, at an auction where you have to um, bid for the house or you might be collecting payment details. So you need technology that is compliant. If you're going to be collecting this, it needs to be safe from a cyber uh, perspective. Um, and, you know, it doesn't have strong integration. So a lot of a lot of prop tech coming out today, and there's about 380 prop tech companies in Australia and a lot of investment in that space. So agents have agencies have a lot to choose from, but does it integrate well? Are you choosing something that stands on its own and doesn't the data doesn't speak anywhere? You can't log in to this. You know, does it integrate well with other platforms because the process, you know, is quite sophisticated and you want that really smooth process so that agents look really amazing in front of their clients. So, yeah, if I had to be giving some advice on an agency choosing different technology to use, then, you know, you're going for scalability, you're going for integrations, you're going for compliance and cybersecurity um, and something, you know, will survive the distance in the technology space. But yeah, it's really difficult. There's a lot of moving pieces and uh, agencies traditionally want to choose technology that will get them ahead, that will make them, you know, look look better than maybe their old friend down the road and make them look better, better in front of their, their clients. It's, it's a really interesting space. Well, Danielle, that's all fascinating. And I'm sure agents will be listening to that with rap fascination. <laughs> Thank you very much for your time. Oh, no worries, Leon. Thank you so much for having me. And now let's talk to Rabobank economist Michael Ivory. Well, Michael, China's economic picture looks pretty bad. Bank loans have plunked to a 14-year low last month. Deflation is setting in. Exports are contracting and uh, unemployment is rising. What's your view about this? Well, I'm not surprised. Regular listeners will know I've been nothing but bearish on China's economic prospects for a very long time. And a lot of those chickens are now coming home to roost. I think the important thing to recognize is that exactly the same reasons that led me to be bearish when everyone else who didn't bother analyzing it properly was bullish also make clear that there's no easy way out of this. So it's not just the case that, yeah, okay, it's bad now, we were wrong, but don't worry, they'll cut interest rates or they'll spend a bit more money and then everything will pick up again. That simply isn't the case. Structurally, they've really run into a brick wall and it's extremely difficult to postulate a realistic political economy response that can A, get them out of this relatively painlessly and quickly, and B, doesn't have deleterious effects on the rest of the global economy if they do. What's been the response so far? Very little. I mean, mainly in the realm of monetary policy, where interest rates are going down rather than up. But that doesn't really matter in China, because number one, they're already in what we call a liquidity trap, where everyone has just so much debt. And I mean, everyone in China has so much debt that you lower the cost of borrowing. It makes it easier to service the debt. Nobody wants to borrow any more to do anything new. So maybe you can carry your existing loans, maybe you can refinance them, but you certainly don't borrow any more money to do anything new. So there's no growth. That's the best case scenario. But interest rates in China were already very politicized and didn't necessarily reflect you know, the rate that you saw on the screen. If you're an important firm, you could certainly get subsidies and you know, a de facto borrowing rate, which was lower than what you saw. So in the realm of monetary policy alone, they are where the Western world was five years ago, where interest rates were uh, incredibly low. And, you know, in Australia's case, heading towards where they were during COVID when they were shockingly low. Um, but in this case, it's not generating any kind of response because there's no further bubble left to blow with those lower rates. 
one of the issues that you and I discussed was the lack of uh, consumer oomph in China, China's economy. No one was buying it. What are they doing about that? Not a lot. They're talking a lot. They're recognizing the fact that they need to have a shift to consumption. But if I had a dollar, Aussie or US, for every single time I've seen uh, a shallow analyst who doesn't understand China uh, or a market shell or someone from China themselves who's genuinely well-intentioned but doesn't maybe grasp the full scale of the problem, say we're going to rotate to consumption or China is rotating to consumption, I could retire right now. But it doesn't happen because you have a political economy which above and beyond anything ideological, which we've discussed many times in the past, in practical terms, is all about investment. The Chinese economy is about just building things endlessly. Keep building, keep building, and they will come. That's not consumption. That's investment. And if you pivot away from investment to consumption and you cut the cake or divide the cake differently, all the companies that have been investing go bankrupt because it's a perpetual motion machine or it's a, you know, it's a pyramid scheme. So then if you do that, you fire all the people working for those companies, and then you don't have any consumption again. So it's very, very hard to get yourself out of this particular economic cul-de-sac. And uh, unemployment is rising, particularly youth unemployment. It's well, we about think 20%. It is. Well, we don't know. It was 21% the last time we had the data, and now it's so bad they've stopped publishing it. So you know, the, whisp the whisper is it's 25% now. Now, we've seen higher levels than that in major economies. I mean, I remember a few years back in Italy and Spain, they had 40% youth unemployment, which is just shocking. I mean, and those societies didn't break down. But what you did have was um, mass emigration, where you know lots of young Spaniards and Italians went to work elsewhere, mainly in the UK pre-Brexit. Um, I'm not quite sure what China's option is, but they need to do something. And the government is aware they need to do something, but there are very rigid limits to what they can do in some respects and what they can do without making matters worse in other respects and the time frame within which they can realistically hope to do it. Isn't that a risk for Xi Jinping in terms of uh, possible social contagion? Well, I mean, I think China is very, very carefully, it's a very regimented society, shall we say. The government spends, I'm sure, more on internal security than it does, does on external defence spending and is very, very well aware of what people are and are thinking and saying due to the way that their social credit system and social media system is set up. But if you look at it from the other way around, they need to do something about this. They understand that. But if they were to revert back to just more investment spending in more empty apartments, more infrastructure that isn't needed, more factories that don't have anyone to buy the end product, that would only create more problems. And if they were to push property prices up again, which, is, as I've said many times, some regular listeners have heard me say, is, a, I think, an economic sickness with which Australia is very, very badly uh, plagued itself, if they thought, well, that's how we get out of it, you just end up with an even angrier echelon of young people who can't afford to buy a home and can't afford to pay rent either, as is increasingly the case in Australia and other Western economies. So that's no route to social stability either. So there's no easy fix for this. And it doesn't mean that the government isn't unaware of it. They are. They are just not prepared to go for the easy fix that we have been in the West, which actually makes things worse in a different way. So what can they possibly do looking ahead? That's a great, that's a great question. And the answer is not a lot. Once you've, once you've got into this particular mess, it, you know, if, if you break your arm or your leg and it resets in the wrong position, the first thing you're going to have to do is break it again. 
before it can get better. And that's pretty much the position they're in now. There isn't an easy way to do that or a painless way to do it. One thing that we suspect they might have to do, and this is where it starts to have external effects too, is to say, look, we're going to use some of the new financial architecture that we're setting up to start experimenting with some things that you've heard talked about in the West too, like central bank digital currency, et cetera, et cetera, and literally start giving people programmable electronic vouchers to spend on specific products. Like, for example, we're making too many television sets. That's just an example, okay? But um, people aren't buying enough television sets, so here's a thousand Aussie dollars equivalent in your bank or on a credit card or on some kind of digital format for you to buy a television in the next three months, and if you don't, it disappears. So you're just creating demand de novo from out of thin air to try and match that demand to supply. Now, could that work? Theoretically, yes. Institutionally, there are question marks how it, how it would work. If you do it on too small a scale, which they've been trying with vouchers in some cities already, it doesn't move the needle. If you do it on a large scale, it's hugely inflationary, as it was during COVID. Here's free money that you have to go and use to buy X. But more importantly, if you go down that particular road, you can kiss goodbye to any dream you've ever had of having market forces. There is no market economy there. You have a planned economy, effectively, where you're creating demand you know, by pressing a button constantly to try and match the, the supply that you've also created with the same system. And that starts to destabilize things short term, medium term, long term. And for the Western economy, it means, you know, doing business with China would become that much trickier because this would be for made in China products only. They're not going to do that for anything made abroad. It'll only be for national products. But it could still then see a bigger demand for commodity prices, at which point everyone else in the rest of the world would not benefit from any of that growth. But they would suffer from the higher inflation, because if China is making more stuff again or is uh, you know consuming more stuff, that's more consumption of commodities, more inflation for everyone else around the rest of the world. And something like that is not exactly a market-led market-led solution, is it? Not at all. And again, to be completely fair and putting this in a broader context, you have seen similar discussions being held in in Europe, in America, not in Australia. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com slash Wondersuite because you know the RBA is just so far behind the curve in terms of understanding how the real world works. It's a bit embarrassing. But these conversations are being had in cloistered circles. And during COVID, you, know, you could say we edged pretty close to that, except we just handed out checks to everybody rather than mandating what you spent it on. And we didn't ask questions about whether it was a domestically produced product or a foreign one. And it's a good job that we did do that to a degree because we didn't have any domestically produced products. But that's part of why we're seeing supply chains shifting all over the world because we're realizing that we need to buy less from China and make more at home or nearer to home. So it's not like China is an outlier in this. There are other economies. Thailand is talking about doing something very, very similar right now. They're the government that's close to being put into office. And I expect it will come back as a trend if we do get a big global downturn and we have a big a demand shortfall everywhere and oversupply. But yeah, you're not moving towards any kind of market solution. You're moving more towards a computerized command economy of sorts and the track record of getting those things right is zero 
And uh, so, I mean, China is very much a political economy. So, what are the possible, what other, what would be the possible consequences of this? Well, it means it's easier to implement. But if it is done, it's obviously going to be done with a distinctly ideological bent. As I said, anything that they're purchasing will be made in China as much as possible. The, the more raw materials might still have to come from abroad, but all the value add would be captured domestically. Possibly they'll even try and use the same method to, to shift you know, even commodity supply chains. For example, it could be that this digital uh, payment system that I'm discussing is one where they say, well, look, we can either get iron ore from Australia and we have to pay you in dollars outside this digital payment system, or we can buy it from Africa or Brazil and they'll take the digital payment system. So we'll buy from them instead, at which point your exports dry up overnight because you're not prepared to go on the same system as them. Are we there yet? No. Are we heading towards that when the data get worse and worse like this and decisions have to be made that are increasingly existential? Yes. And it would be very naive not to see that. And uh, those decisions will be made without any clear solution in mind in that case. Well, it will be an ideological one, which is national security bound and which, again, is, is being echoed all around the world. It will be one based on trying to move towards more consumption. But of course, that, that will still be inflationary if you're not cutting back on investment at the same time. And it will, you know. I think almost inevitably end up with a broader decoupling of China from the rest of the world economy, because the only way to get it more integrated would be to say, look, here's a stimulus package like what everyone else did during COVID, but we want to encourage you to go on holiday to Australia, or we want you to encourage you to, you know, buy a pair of Ugg boots or, you know, buy products from the rest of the world to integrate with them more deeply. And we'll get a consumer boom, but we'll also get imports on the other side of that. And the, the chances of that happening are zero. So it will accentuate a decoupling within China and other people mirroring it back the other way. Well, Michael, that's all sobering thoughts. And uh, thank you very much for your time. You're very welcome. So what's happening in the news? Well, data from the Australian Bureau of Statistics showed that the July monthly consumer price indicator, CPI, cooled to 4.9% from 5.4%. And Qantas Chief Executive Alan Joyce must have known that the hastily convened Senate Select Committee into the cost of living would turn out to be a cross between a circus and a show trial. But that didn't stop him sticking his hand out. Airfares are coming down, Joyce said, but they could fall faster if the national carrier got a little more help from the government. Regulations to bring down airport fees would help. Oh, and taxpayer funds to create a sustainable aviation fuel industry would be nice too. Not surprisingly, the committee, chaired by Liberal Senator Jane Hume, ignored Joyce's pitch. Instead, senators competed to put the heat on the airline boss, frequently expressing frustration with Joyce's attempts to roll out well-worn talking points and pummeling him with questions on everything from competition policy to flight credits to cancellations. Joyce largely kept his cool, even when demanding more time to fully answer questions. But the grilling he copped should serve as a warning to chief executives. As cost of living pressures rise, more business leaders will, fight, will likely find themselves in the sights of politicians. And as Joyce and the bank of CEOs have been dragged to Canberra for years, can attest, it's not fun. But it was under questioning from Labor Senator Tony Sheldon, where Joyce was closest to losing his cool. Sheldon, the former National Secretary of the Transport Workers Union, is a long-time enemy of Qantas and pressed hard on how many COVID flight credits Qantas is still holding up. At December 31st, the airline said it was holding 800 million in unused credits from the COVID-19 period that would expire at the end of the year unless flights were booked for travel to the end of 2024. But when it reported last week the company listed only $370 million worth of credits belonging to Australians in its account. Qantas executives considered to the inquiry that amount did not include unused credits for subsidiary Jetstar or international customers. 
Mr Joyce and Jetstar Chief Executive Stephanie Tully admitted that there was at least another $100 billion owed to Jetstar customers, although neither would commit to extending the timeline for using the credits. We're here asking questions about substantial sums of money that is owed to the Australian public overseas and through the Jetstar operations and has not been paid, Senator Sheldon said. You've put an arbitrary deadline of, of December this year when people lose that money. The money stays in the pockets of Qantas and Jetstar and you're seriously telling the Australian public that you don't know how many millions of dollars are involved? Qantas was the most complained about company in Australia in 2022 and 2023, largely because of its flight credits. It is now the subject of a class action lawsuit from Echo Law. Sheldon has history here, but he was right when he said Qantas seemed underprepared for obvious questions about exactly how many credits it's holding. If Monday's questioning is any guide, this issue won't go away while politicians they've found a popular stick to whack Qantas with. And it was destined to save money, but blew out by billions. A plan aimed at saving the nation's businesses time and money has been abandoned by the federal government after an independent review found it would cost almost $3 billion to complete and not be operational until the end of the decade. The overhaul of numerous business and company registers promised as part of the Morrison government's deregulation agenda in 2019 was originally estimated to cost taxpayers $480 million and be in place by the middle of next year. Instead, a review released on Monday by Assistant Treasurer Stephen Jones found the Modernising Business Registers program had effectively fallen apart due to problems in its original design, the expansion of the programs that was being developed, skyrocketing costs of contractors, plus the pandemic's impact on finding some suitably qualified staff. The review, compiled by former CEO of Service New South Wales, Damon Rees, found that at least another $2 billion of taxpayers' money would need to be spent on the program, describe even that expenditure as a high-risk undertaking. It would not be completely in place until 2029. And company directors rallying behind an Indigenous voice in Parliament say the Yes campaign is a sharper message for voters about the benefits of the proposed advisory body or risk the nation taking a step backwards on reconciliation. More than 450 directors have joined forces to encourage Australians to vote yes in the Indigenous Voice to Parliament referendum, calling constitutional recognition a critical step towards a more inclusive Australia. With a $130,000 war chest on hand, the group organised by Ming Long, a director of Telstra and IFM Investors, and Nora Scheinkestel, who sits on the Westpac and Origin Energy boards, have placed full-page advertisements advocating a yes vote in national newspapers. The 469-strong group, which also includes directors Cheryl Heyman, Tinasha Kamangira and Nicolette Rubenstein, will not be part of the official yes campaign, but hope to get their message out through advertising and word of mouth. And questions have been raised about Fortescue Metals after news that its chief executive, Fiona Hick, is leaving the iron ore miner just six months after taking on the top role, the latest in a wave of high-level resignations. After just six months in the role, the former Woodside top executive was gone by mutual agreement of the board, led by Chairman Forrest on Sunday. Hick had attended Saturday night's gala event in the Pilbara, the 20th anniversary of Fortescue's Pilbara operations. However, 24 hours later, she was airbrushed from history, no longer in a published annual report as CEO or other financial documents, except for several notes in the remuneration report. Was she pushed? Did she jump? Is this a failure of the top heavy leadership that led to her sharing power with Forrest as executive chairman and Mark Hutchinson as CEO of the company's green hydrogen-focused Fortescue Future Industries division? Hick was paid $2.2 million in the period up to the end of June. The $60 billion iron ore miner was nothing short of a shambles earlier on Monday, and not from any external shocks like a slow in China's economy or a collapse in iron ore prices. Rather, it's all from Fortescue's own doing. 
The change comes during a period marked by huge executive staff turnover at the Andrew Forrest founded Minor and the pursuit of a new growth league in hydrogen and clean energy projects. Only two of the 11 people serving on Fortescue's elite executive ranks in late 2020 remain with the company today. Lawyer Peter Houston and the former chief executive of Fortescue Future Industries, Julie Shuttleworth. Fortescue said in a statement Hick made a joint decision with the board to leave. There does not appear to be any transition period, with the successor, the former head of operations, Dino Atranto, taking over immediately. Atranto is very highly regarded inside Fortescue, but the lack of explanation of Hick's departure and the attempt to spin Otranto's appointment as planned is frankly an insult to investors, as analysts led by Goldman Sachs' Paul Young to rightly told Hutchinson. Analysts quizzed Fortescue on the reasons for the high-level change, only to be told it was a planned move and part of an expedited appointment. The changes at the top of Fortescue were announced on Monday, shortly before the company delivered its weakest annual profit in three years, dropping 23%. This comes at a time when the ownership structure of Fortescue, with the separation of Andrew Forrest from his wife Nicola, Australia's wealthiest couple, was made public in July. The Forrest said at the time their decision to live apart would not affect their shared philanthropic or business interests, which includes more than a one-third stake in Fortescue. And a record 1.5 million Australians were at risk of mortgage stress in three months to July, as a growing number of home loan borrowers grappled with making ends meet due to the sharpest cash rate increases in decades. New research by Roy Morgan shows that compared to a year earlier, 642,000 more Australians were paying between 25 and 45% of their income into their home loan, putting more at risk of financial stress than even during the global financial crisis. The largest size of the home loan market today means that proportionally close to a third of borrowers, 29.2%, are at risk. That is up from 28.8% in the quarter ending in June, but below the record high proportion of mortgage holders at risk during the GFC in 2008. Those considered extremely at risk had increased to 1 million or 20.3%, significantly above the 15-year average of 15.4%, the researchers said. A separate report by S&P Global Ratings on Monday said rising interest rates and cost-of-living pressures had pushed overdue mortgage repayments slightly higher during the second quarter of 2023. And while most borrowers appear to be managing the confluence of, com- of financial pressures, the ratings agency said mortgage arrears would continue rising for months to come and would not peak until next year, when the total impact of 12 interest rate rises hit home. And an underwhelming reporting season points to a deeper fall in earnings and a slower rebound than previously expected, even though the economy held up a bit better than expected in the year to June. While there's hope of easier comparisons ahead for the retail sector, the main takeaways from reporting season are that while revenues have been stronger than expected, corporates haven't done enough to control costs, the earnings outlook has worsened, and the market isn't overly cheap. That leaves it vulnerable to jitters over the outlook for US interest rates or China's economy. Weak guidance has led analysts to lower their expectations by more than usual for the current financial year. Analysts have cut their expectation for financial 2024 profits by a ratio of 2 to 1. The consensus now is a 5.7% fall, down from minus 0.8% a month ago and plus 0.7% six months ago. Even after accounting for a positive translation effect from a hefty 4.7% fall in the exchange rate this month, the fall in the consensus estimate has exceeded the normal downgrade during reporting season, according to MST's Hassan 
Ted Fick. It comes amid persistent, broad domestic cost pressures, which have been the most prevalent headache for companies this profit season. Across sectors, management teams are pointing to the cost growth they're seeing from labour, rent, energy, transport and technology spend, said UBS equity strategist Richard Schelbeck. Broad stickiness in cost inflation that we saw in company results maps with recent business survey data and suggests that input cost pressures will likely remain elevated. The cost pressures that companies continue to face are still still largely being passed on to customers, allowing companies to defend their profit margins. As was the case in the February result period, telcos and insurers were again able to push through price increases to their customers without harming sales. But without productivity improvements, companies may face a crisis if demand falls away and costs stay elevated, although job cuts are increasingly likely. And the profit reporting season is winding up. Visual Express Holdings, or RICS, announced a statutory profit after tax of $14.4 million for the year ended 30th of June, compared to a loss of $46.1 million in the prior corresponding period. Zinc Brands posted a full-year profit of $1.2 million. Copper and zinc miner 29 Metals crashed to a $307 million loss. Allied health business APM said statutory net profit jumped 72% to $158.5 million in financial year 2023. Restaurant brands NZ, which operates fast food outlets under the KFC, Pizza Hut, Carl's Jr. and Taco Bill brands in New Zealand, Australia and the United States, suffered an 86% slide in net profit after tax to $2.2 million New Zealand dollars, that's $2.03 million Aussie, in the six months ended June 30. Earnings before interest taxes, depreciation and amortisation was reported at $193.7 million, up 15%. After-tax profits at non-bank lender Liberty have died 17% to $181.1 million in financial year 2023 as expense growth outpaced income. Superannuation Administration share registry company Link Group tumbled to its bottom line loss of $480 million for the 12 months end of June 30. Fortescue Metals' net profit after tax fell 23% to US $4.8 billion. Maggie Beer Holdings reported a net profit after tax of $462,000, compared with a loss of $12.3 million a year earlier. Artificial intelligence data services company Appen reported a statutory net loss of $43.3 million for the six months ended June 30. Global mining tech company Index profit fell 22% to $35 million. Dalrymple Bay Infrastructure Interim Net Profit lifted fivefold to $34 million. Online program manager KeyPath Education has reported earnings before interest tax and amortization loss of US $9.5 million, that's $14.8 million Aussie, in financial year 2023. Hospitality giant EVT Limited reported its net profit after tax had increased to 99.8% to $106.5 million. Strata Management and insurance bill John's Ling earnings before interest tax appreciation and amortization rose 42.9% to $119.4 million. Star Entertainment has posted a $2.4 billion full-year loss. Tasmanian whisky company Lark Distilling Co. suffered a loss of $4.91 million for the 12 months into June 30, compared with a loss of $470,000 a year earlier. Sipco's gross profit was $250.6 million, up 20%. Cement and concrete brute Adbri generated 3% lift in that net profit to $49.7 million for the six months ended June 30. Wealth Platform Premium's Australian segment posted record earnings of $23.4 million, up 23% on the previous year. Fisher & Paykel Healthcare expects operating revenue for the first half, which ends in September, to come in at $790 million. New Zealand dollars, that's $725 million Aussie, and net profit after tax to fall within a range of $95 million New Zealand dollars to $105 million New Zealand dollars. 
Chrysos Corporation, the company part owned by the CSIRO, announced a net profit of $443,000 for 2023, compared with a loss of $3.9 million a year earlier. After tax profits at non-bank lender Resimank have dived more than 30% to $66.5 million. Numi, the manufacturer of Milk Lab and other plant-based and dairy products formerly known as Freedom Foods, has posted a smaller net loss of $46.9 million in fiscal 2023. Telecommunications group Superloop, posted an annual net loss of $43 million. Cooper Energy swung to an annual loss of $55.6 million from a $14.4 million profit a year earlier. Tyro Payments' gross profit rose 32.1% to a record $204.3 million. Mineral Resources' net profit after tax was $244 million, down 30% from FY22. Prosper has reversed to a $44.9 million after-tax loss. Kelsian the commuter bus, ferry and tourism group's net profit after tax slumped by 60% to $21 million. Flight Centre recorded underlying earnings before interest tax and amortisation at $301.6 million. Transport and logistics group Bramble's net profit after tax climbed by 90% to US $703.3 million for the 12 months ended June 30. Pathology giant Helios has sunk to a full year $397.8 million loss. Laser Australia has delivered an 11% lift in profit to $7.1 million. City Sheep Collective's underlying EBITDA from continuing operations tumbled 144.6% to a loss of $23.97 million. ASX-listed software company Dicker Data has posted a half-year net profit after tax of $54.1 million, up 7.8% when compared to the prior corresponding period. And that's it for this week. And next week, I'll be talking to Angus Ferguson, the Head of Customer Solutions at Domain Group. And I'll be talking to EY economist Sherelle Murphy about the latest inflation figures. In the meantime, catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube. And if you want, leave a comment. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business on the Apple Podcast Store or on my website, leongetler.com. If you want to contact me, email me at leon at leongetler.com. I answer all emails. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.